0: You're listening to an ODI
1: live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org.
0: Welcome everybody. Gosh, a packed room. How lovely to see you all. Um, And uh, so welcome to this event on evidence-informed decision-making in a complex world. Um, my name is Louise Shaxson. I'm a senior research fellow here in the RAPID program at ODI. Um, and I would like to not only welcome everyone in the room, but also our online audience, um, who I believe is joining from, from several countries. I just need to do a bit of housekeeping first. Um, please do put your phones on silent, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't tweet uh, like little birds. So please do, please do tweet. Um, the hashtag is evidence for impact. Um, and tw- our Twitter handles are on the screen. Uh, for the online audience, um, please do send through questions, and they will appear on my iPad here, and I will feed those into the, into the Q&A session. If the ODI people could just remind me to keep looking at the iPad, that would be, that would be very helpful, because I'm sure the discussion is going to get, um, it's going to be absolutely fascinating. So I'd like to, I'd like to introduce our panelists for this event. Um, to my right, is Irena Hait, um, who leads Oxfam GB's research team, which uses evidence to influence economic, environmental, and social justice. Um, her core areas of interest are things like the complexity of systemic change for social justice and how sense-making informs action through evaluative thinking monitoring theory of change citizens' voice influence on policy and practice, narratives as, as evidence, um, pretty wide uh, range of, of things there. And prior to joining Oxfam GB in 2015, Irena worked for 25 years in rural development, natural resource management, collective action and social justice, and she's a keen advocate for making the less heard voices more audible and influential. To my left, uh, Gina Porter, Been based at Durham University since 1986. First in the sorry, sorry about that. I've been I've been work I've been working in this area since 1986 as well. Um, uh, First in the sorry, (laughs) got that off the website. Uh, She was first in the geography department, and since uh, 2001 in the Department of Anthropology. And she's undertaken field research in Nigeria, Ghana, South Africa, Malawi, Tanzania. Uh, many other countries, Kenya, Brazil, Papua New Guinea, and India. Uh, And her research combines ethnographic approaches with a strong interest in spatial perspectives. And she's currently working on mobility, transport, and the use of mobile phones in sub-Saharan Africa. So very, very topical indeed. to, on the far right um, is Nasreen Jassani. Uh, she's in the faculty at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, and she focuses on the nexus between health policy and systems research and innovations in evidence-informed policy and practice, the relationship between academia and public policy. She's based in Johannesburg in South Africa, and she provides capacity-strengthening tools to a bunch of acronyms. I'm <laughs> 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 um, I, I, the uh, the world health organization and there seems to be assorted partners yeah. the assorted partners you can talk about operational research operational, yeah. research, operational <laughs> research i need to do my research more on the on the uh, on our panel members but she's also on the knowledge translation and policy group of the um, of one of the groups in in the world health organization is vice chair of the evidence to action thematic working group for health systems global Uh, Nasreen was previously based in Kenya with Canada's International Development Research Centre, where she managed a portfolio of projects across East and Southern Africa, spanning issues of knowledge, translation, governance and equity in health systems. And to my far left is Mel She's ESRC's Strategic Lead for Innovation and Interdisciplinarity, having taken up the role in September 2016. Her responsibilities include developing ESRC's thinking and activities around interdisciplinary challenge-led activities and ensuring that ESRC's research portfolio is more visible to potential users, as well as creating opportunities to enable researchers from other communities to engage with with social science. Um, She's uh, ESRC's strategic lead for working with Innovate UK, and prior to this um, taking up this position Mel led on developing and and delivering esrc's knowledge exchange and public engagement strategies as well as providing strategic leadership to a breadth of esrc investments focusing on engagement for impact and for uh, for our online audience esrc is the economic and social research council one of the one of the um, research councils for the uk so this panel session comes at a time We're all grappling with the implications of recent political events. The rise of populist politics and a growing anti expert movement in the Western world sits uneasily with our knowledge of the increasing complexity of international development. We know that evidence is a complex and often contested term, and we know that there's no single definition of what makes evidence rigorous, and we know that there are many different ways that evidence can inform policy discussions. And we also know that there are people for whom experts, in quotation marks, with evidence have less to say than people who share their concerns. And these are not just the people who've been left behind after the global financial crisis, but people who feel that the focus on evidence has come at the expense of the values that they hold dear. And we in the development sector need to understand all of this, and we need to navigate it as we pursue the work that we believe really does have the potential to make a significant difference for some of the poorest in the world. But on the one hand, we're being asked by some donors for very simple messages about value for money and timely, clear impact. And on the other, we're being told by our partners and stakeholders that for impact to be sustainable and inclusive, we need to accept that it is long-term, it's diffuse, and it's often fragile. So there are deep implications for the types of evidence we gather and how we use them to inform decision-making. And I would argue that there's no right or wrong here But the political economy of the sector is changing, and we need to recognise that. And we who work in international development need to ensure that the work we do remains valued by everyone, both by those who ultimately pay our wages, and I'm not simply talking about uh, donor organisations, I'm talking about the taxpayer, but also to those we're trying to help. So the question that we're posing for this panel, I'm going to ask them to, to respond to, is... Given that there is this tension between simple messages about value for money and impact and the complexity that we know characterises our work in international development, how do you view the tension in each of your organisations and how do you navigate it? What are the different pressures on you to demonstrate impact with what sorts of evidence and where do those pressures come from? What does this mean for how you assess your own impact and the evidence you use to present to the wider world? So we want this uh, event to be as practical as possible and are looking forward to hearing some concrete examples from a full range of different organizations. So I'm going to turn to Irena first. And what I'm interested to know is, is Oxfam GB. It's a leading NGO. How do you view these cultural and political changes around research and decision making and impact? How do you assess the impact of your research on what Oxfam does and what it delivers? And how do you ensure that the research you commission is relevant to all your stakeholders? So do you see these tensions as real tensions? And if so, how do you navigate them?
2: Good thing I got those questions ahead of time. I would never have remembered them all. OK, so a little caveat, because I joined Oxfam a year ago. I came to the UK a year ago. So there's kind of like novelty at many levels that I'm dealing with. Oxfam is huge. You know, it's got ten thousand people in ninety countries. You know, lots of affiliates. We're getting close to twenty, so it's quite a decentralised, kind of influencing network. It it has this worldwide influencing net network aspiration, and it wants to do so in increasingly evidence-informed ways. We have extremely low budgets. We're very value-driven, and so we have all kinds of um, I suppose conditions under which we have to operate. When I joined, I was really quite intrigued that I wasn't head of research, I was head of a small little kind of dense fog dimension given that research sits like a mist in the, in the organization. Lots of people do different things that are all aspects of research, such as our impact evaluation folk and uh, policy um, advisors, they all do aspects of research. So we have a very specific, in the research team, uh, we're really lucky that we're allowed to do some of the more long-term strategic research. Um, And I guess in terms of the first question of how do we assess our impact, um, are people getting hungrier in the organization for research is a really important indicator for me. Um, Are they more curious? Are they more focused? Um, I'm involved in an effort at the moment to try and uh, develop really a set of very limited uh, questions that drive our internal curiosity. So that notion of what's cu- who's curious, where in the system, and how we can support that is a really important aspect. And in that sense, we're um, too successful because we have an overwhelming number of internal requests for support, um, which we can never fulfill. The actual research team is quite small. Um, so that's one aspect. Um, another aspect Um, In terms of whether how we assess the impact of our research is whether we're helping people to deliver a nuanced Message Oxfam is not a research organization as such we use research to to support our programmatic work humanitarian work and our campaigns work and they sometimes uh, Are at odds with not at odds with each other, but they they have different um, needs. Uh, so the campaign's work is very much for, you know, they, they, for example, ending tax havens, right? There's re- there's evidence that's needed to try and support a foundation to say this is why this is a good idea. So when, so our contribution to that discussion would be, okay, this is what you can say, this is what you can't say, this is the evidence base, and to help ensure that there's a nuanced message that is really robust. Um, in relation to to those kinds of, of questions, but it's but it's also around a decent work um, and and helping people to understand that there's different methods that could be used to develop um, uh, well a, a different kind of evidence base. so I'm really trying to push work around voice in, in Oxfam, um, where at the moment, you know, there's a lot of reliance also on third party people to provide. We don't have a very large budget, so we have to use a lot of, of secondary data or outsource very small bits of, of, re- of surveys. Um, so we're trying to, to, I'm trying to make sure that there's other ways in which people can Uh, in which we're delivering on um, kind of more human voice types of of, uh, work. So, for example, we've just done some work in Morocco where we we had 200 stories from from women working in the strawberry sector, and we're saying, well, this is what these stories are saying, and quantitatively, this is what it's showing. So actually bringing the two different um, kind of sides of of data together. Um, And another one which might sound really odd is that we're also making sure that sometimes messages or information isn't put out there. So sometimes people would like to put things out there or would like to say things um, related to programmatic data or to support some of the, the campaign aims. And we're saying, well, actually, can you say that? And uh, we've had a number of—I've of, been involved in a number of cases where we're saying, well, actually, you can't really say that. So this is what you can say. So it's actually being cautious about what it is that you can assert based on the evidence base that is out there. So we actually have quite a risk management, but also a kind of—I like to think about it as a thoughtful kind of—we're kind of like a thoughtful supporter of of the work in Oxfam. Um, in terms of um, making it relevant, we have so many different stakeholders. It's it's pretty insane um, because the, all the different themes, um, all country offices and international kind of bodies and units. Um, so we have very, um, I suppose, stakeholder and product specific um, uh, processes that say, okay, this research is to try and do what. So who are you trying to shape? So we actually have, who are you trying to influence? Is it a hearts and minds piece of research? Is it a, okay, here's just some, you know, here's what we know, a kind of a, an almost like a stock take type of research. Um, so we have quite specific um, products as well that we produce depending on who it is that we're trying to um, provide a research um, service to. And we will commission Um so, some of the work as well, obviously, because we really are very tiny. The, the research team is eight people, <laughs> and we do everything from inequality to gender justice and kind of decent work in all kinds of value chains. And so we, you know, it's, it's almost, that's why I'm talking about this mist and this amor- network of relationships. Um, A really big part of that, and a big opportunity for us, is the GCRF, the Global Challenge Research Fund. Um, And one of the ways in which I try to make sure that the research stays relevant is to say, actually, yes, we'd love to partner with you, but not only on your terms. Because we're being courted quite a lot by universities in this whole process. And I'm saying, well, actually, but we'd like to be at the table when the questions are formulated not just when you want us to say something with the data that you've produced. Because that's how they traditionally see organizations like Oxfam. We're not just an amplifier of findings, we actually think. We're actually researchers. We've done PhDs. You know, we've, and even if you haven't done PhDs, you know, you've we we have reflections about what questions matter and what kinds of evidence matters. So I'm trying to also make sure that the research that's commissioned or that's done in partnerships with um, academia are increasingly um, on the basis of um, being peers in the thinking process. One minute. One minute. So in terms of the tensions, yes, the tensions are quite real for us. Um, We were having a lot of debates internally. And I think the debates are quite interesting because it's taking me out of the research role into very strongly into the use role. So um, I'm also working a lot with the publications unit and the Publications Unit, well, I call them the Publications. It's actually the Policy and Practice Unit, because they've got a very, very strong digital presence. And we're increasingly thinking, how can we engage differently around different types of issues in ways that also means that we listen? Because part of the problem, I think, for organizations uh, that are very value-driven is to make sure that you don't only push your values onto others, but you also are, are just sitting down and listening to people. and, and Allowing yourself to reconsider what it is that you um, are are trying to say. So, one of the big tensions that we have is um, <clears throat> is I th- is very much around um, responding to the need for quick campaign products or quick findings. Or we also have to help make sure that some of the accountability um, research, uh, the basis of some of the uh, kind of accountability needs, are are, are solid. Um, although that is technically a different team, but we're helping methodologically with that. So we have that tension between that need for speed, but also this notion that well, in two or three years' time, we really have to know what it you know the gig economy. It's not just even two or three years' time, but we've got to we've got to be on top of that. But where's that investment coming? You know, we're not going to get it from academia, unfortunately. It, often, you know, because those relationships aren't there. So how are we going to get that? So we're working with a research network. Um, Across the Oxfam's to try and anticipate some of the big questions and writing essays or kind of trying to pull together the data around that. So we can talk more about the tensions, but they're very, very real. And they very much relate to how we message, what we message, who we discuss with, who we listen to, what we don't say. So it's actually more what you do with findings than the findings as such. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Five minutes.
0: Thank you very much. Um, that's, a, that's an excellent start. Nasreen, I'd like to, to turn to you now to ask you to reflect on the question of evidence and decision making in the public health arena, um, but to focus on the challenges that national governments are, are facing. So the particular question is, is what needs to be done to strengthen evidence use within national governments? And to what extent are they facing these, these sorts of tensions? OK.
3: Um,
1: so thanks for the question, Louise. Um, but also a disclaimer out there, I don't work in a national government. But I'll share my experiences working with several governments in low- and middle-income countries in which I've been involved. So we speak about national governments um, in in whole, but obviously they're not homogenous nor are they monolithic, and I think it would be a mistake to speak of them as if they are. Um, I think we have governments that have a more favorable view towards the role of evidence in decision-making and others um, not so much, and this could be due to several reasons. I'll give you two examples. So I currently live in South Africa, um, and there is a concerted effort to consider research, um, evidence, and tacit knowledge, and indigenous knowledge, um, and not only to inform policy and decision-making, but also in terms of implementation. Um, And this isn't only in the public health arena. This goes across sectors, and part of this is because of the historical impact of communicable diseases such as HIV and AIDS that have had a devastating effect on the country for several years. Um, historically, ignorance of evidence has resulted in a promulgation um, of these ailments with impacts that go beyond health into the economic sectors, the labor sectors, um, the mining sector. Um, And so a whole-of-government approach to tackling AIDS has meant that the South African government has had to consider um, the economic, social, educational, as well as educational um, and health impacts of public health Mm -hmm. challenges. And so in that particular context, I think there's very much a, um, not a, a post-fact era, but very much a pro-fact kind of leaning. Similarly, in Kenya, where I'm originally from, while the government respects the role of evidence, um, one has to take into consideration the political as well as social implications of what that evidence means. And so we talked about it a bit earlier today. Um, for instance, there was, and some of you may be familiar, that there was a groundbreaking um, study on the links between male circumcision and reduction of um, the incidence of HIV. And while While this came to light, and the evidence was clear, um, it wasn't an easy policy decision for the government to make, particularly because circumcision is entwined in traditional values and customs in Kenya, with some tribes exercising circumcision as a coming of age for young boys and others that don't. And having a blanket policy across the country on reducing HIV incidence by asking all men to be circumcised really went contrary to social values aside from the political imperative of that. And so I think um, the the social impacts and the social considerations of what might have been um, excellent research, rigorous research and evidence, didn't necessarily translate into policy the way that one would have expected good research to, that actually had no controversy around it, except for concern from the public. So I think that governments are not immune to or ignorant about the value of evidence, but I think that perhaps I could focus on um, four challenges, in no particular order, that I have come across, and some of these things we spoke about earlier this morning already. And the first is really a challenge that is relative to values, and I think while we often speak of governments as homogeneous entities, we need to recognize that unless institutionalized, the use of evidence rests on the values and on the ideal ideologies of individuals, um, and who sits at the table with you when making these decisions and discussions. And as we have seen in the current post-fact era, whether office bearers have a bias towards or against evidence determines if, when, and how it's used. The value placed on data, though, has a domino effect, then, in terms of the funding for the collection and or use of data. So, for example, in... um, In Canada, after decades of diligent use of census data, in the long-form census was actually abolished in 2011 under the Conservative government, only to come back in 2016 with a new liberal government in place. And so for this particular challenge, in terms of values, I think it's important to first recognize and acknowledge the prevailing values and beliefs around evidence use, not just of the institution, but of the individuals in which one engages and then find ways to institutionalize an evidence-friendly culture that would permeate. I think that would be the first challenge I've noticed. The second is about research literacy. There's plenty of good evidence, there's bad evidence, there's conflicting evidence, and I think research literacy, you know, quote unquote, being able to decipher the difference and be critical about the information being received is perhaps one challenge we see in amongst individuals and governments. Kenya may be on its way to overcoming some of this by encouraging the employment of uh, office bearers to have master's degrees or to have PhDs, with the assumption, of course, that this means they'd be able to to demand um, for better evidence, but also to be able to interrogate the evidence that comes across their desk. Um, And so there needs to be a concerted effort to enhance research literacy in order to enhance evidence use. The third is about the relevance of existing evidence. So best practices are often based on experiences that come from outside of many of these developing countries. Um, and and, and therefore not locally generated. And this could be due to several reasons. One, a lack of research capacity in the country. Um, It could be due to the destruction of previously established systems of sentinel surveillance that we've seen happen in in conflict, um, in in areas of conflict, such as, you know, recently Liberia, um, or in Haiti when they had the huge earthquake and and, and, and a lot of their sentinel surveillance systems were destroyed. Um, But also a dearth of locally generated evidence um, being a notable challenge um, governments need to invest in national and subnational policy and practice relevant research systems. And by systems, I mean everything in terms of not just building capacity of researchers to be able to produce the relevant knowledge that's re- for the country, But having the funding for it, the infrastructure for it, um, ethics boards, research repositories that are centralized, often we find that there's data collected in the health sector that's relevant to the agriculture sector or the nutrition sector or water and sanitation, but they're not speaking to each other. So having centralized repositories are important, particularly as we move towards the uh, attainment of the sustainable development goals. Okay. Um, so by, by investing in locally relevant knowledge, it's not enough. Um, valuing that research is equi- equally important. We find that it results in a consultancy culture if governments don't recognize the value of their own researchers. And so oftentimes you're seeing in developing countries that there may be good research, but only if it's being um, proposed by um, an international agency or external um, researchers. So we need to find a way of helping governments value their own people and their own researchers. And the last one relates to power differentials. And I think, um, Louise, you, you alluded to this earlier. But the knowledge differential between researchers and decision makers manifests as a power differential. And consequently, it hinders ex- you know, constructive engagement. And by this, I mean inadequate appreciation by researchers of the complexity of the policymaking arena but also in in vice versa in terms of um, policymakers perhaps not understanding the process of research and the complexities of research. And so breaking down the transactional or technical nature of engagement to one that is more social and personal may begin to narrow this differential and reduce the veiled but very real mutual feeling of intimidation. And so I have several examples I can give in terms of this sense of other, in terms of feeling like, um, the the them and the us between the government and the decision makers and the researchers and how we can bridge that, but I think creating a sense of understanding, breaking those silences, and just being compassionate. Um, about the context in which each other works will go a long way towards understanding why things can't be the way that one expects them or why decisions are made in a certain way. But unless we have that sense of empathy and compassion towards the different stakeholders in which we work, I think it's, um, it's quite challenging. So I guess from the developing country experience, I'd argue that although the above points, Louise, are notable about a post-fact era and a concern about the anti-expert movement, I think it may not dovetail quite perfectly with the challenges you outline, given that in LMIC is the strength and reliance and emphasis on evidence to inform decision-making would indicate that they're actually pro-fact, uh, not necessarily post-fact, and I hope it continues mm-hmm. to be that way. Um, I'm happy to throw this out for discussion, but as we know, sometimes, as the saying goes, when America sneezes, the world catches a cold. And um, there's this worry that, as we've now progressed in, in developing countries to being reliant on not political decision-making, decision made just on politics, but also on evidence, do we risk losing that, given that there's other movements in in the Western parts of the world that are contradictory to that? So
0: thank you. That's a yes, a very existential question uh, for the for the panel to uh, oh, answer later on. Um, Gina, let's move on to talking about uh, what it's like as a as a researcher. Um, what does the impact agenda mean to you, and particularly um, the research excellence framework? Perhaps you could explain that for our online audience and how does the pressure on you to demonstrate impact fit with the demands of producing high quality research and importantly local ownership of the findings? Yeah, well,
4: (laughs) yes, um, the research excellence framework, um, I suppose the key thing to explain here from an impact perspective is that for the first time in 2014, we had Uh, a review in universities which was not just about research papers, academic papers, and how much money perhaps we brought in and all these and what teaching we did but also what sort of impact we were having beyond academia and it's specifically beyond academia uh, with the REF and it's been very interesting. Um, I think perhaps for people working in the development sector it's more straightforward than it is for some of our colleagues in other areas of the university, like English, for instance, you know, how you're going to have impact. Um, and for somebody like me, it's fantastic, because for the first time, what to me has always seemed important in my work is is considered important by my colleagues, which makes quite a pleasant change. Um, so... No, there are many people, obviously, in the universities who are concerned with impact, have always been concerned with impact. But now we've all got to think more about impact. Every department will have to produce so many case studies, depending on the size of the department, number of staff and so on. And in addition, there are likely to be institutional case studies, which are interdisciplinary and so working across departments, which, again, is quite nice because it's encouraging interdisciplinarity. So that's the sort of context Um, and all I can do is give my personal viewpoint of how I work with the impact agenda Um, because obviously it it depends very much on the sort of work you do and and, uh, where you work and so on. But essentially there are and I think for a researcher the key thing is you want to produce research which is high quality There's got to be rigour, there's got to be independence, as we've discussed earlier today. Um, But at the same time, we've got to try to work with our collaborators uh, in the individual, in the different countries where we work, and produce something which is not going to be just strong academically, but it's going to be really useful on the ground that people are going to be able to use. And I think one of the big issues is the time it takes. It takes an awful long time to produce a good piece of research. It takes an awful long time to build your impact To and to, very often, it, people are working through personal and institutional networks And and sort of these are, I mean, some of my networks go back to yeah, 20, 30 years, actually, I have to confess. Um, but what's even more difficult, I think, now for many of us is not just do it having impact, but proving the impact, having being able to show the evidence of impact. And I think this is really <laughs> what I find with colleagues is, is one of the big worries. You know, OK, we, we're doing things in, in country and and. Perhaps we're changing conceptually how people think about um, how they they approach certain problems. We may even have sort of an instrumental impact where policy changes because of some work that we've done. Um, But we have to bear in mind that we're working in partnership with people in country. We're working with our in-country collaborators, uh, academic collaborators, we're working in partnership, perhaps with n- uh, non-governmental organisations, and we're also trying to work with with government departments. In the re- projects I do for the last twenty years, I think I've had worked with country consultative groups. Where, when whenever we start a research project, right at the start, we have we will invite. People, or even before when we're planning, we'll get people from the relevant ministries, from relevant NGOs, local academics who are interested in the subject area, and ask if they will meet with us at six monthly intervals through the project to discuss what's emerging, to help us to shape our questions, and obviously to help us in impacting um, in what happens in country. Right. Right. but it's, it, it doesn't always go quite how you anticipate it, because the difficulties are that you know your NGO partner, um, your key person, your real champion, is suddenly moved to another country if they're an international NGO. Um, the, the ministry that was really interested in what you were doing, suddenly it's no longer at the top of their agenda. Um, in the, with the private sector, maybe what you're doing is significant, but they're not going to, they wouldn't want to um, give any indication that, that how you've changed things actually um, is, uh, you've done it, <laughs> um, it doesn't suit. And, and there may be confidentiality issues. And I think throughout the process, we've got to think about ethical issues. I mean, in research uh, we always have ethics committees, our, our research process is reviewed. But I think impact itself needs consideration of, of the ethics. We claim, if we claim impact, are we actually being quite arrogant? How much is actually our impact? Impact is very serendipitous. Can we really prove that what we've done is a thing that's changed, changed the world? <laughs> very difficult.
0: Thank you. Yeah, that's so. That's a question that's definitely, um, uh, definitely close, close to my heart. But before before we get into this discussion, I'd like to ask, uh, like, to turn to Mel. Um, so, ESRC and other research councils fund an increasing amount of research in the international development arena, and it would be very helpful to know what are the discussions going on amongst the funders. How are you negotiating this desire for both a simple message and acknowledgement of the complexity of of the real world? Thank you, Louise.
5: It's always lovely going last on the panel because everybody's made the key points that you you, you were hoping to hammer home on. Hopefully I can bring something else to it. I think it's really important in the impact agenda to recognize that this tension between simplicity and complex has actually been around for quite a long time and not just in the development space. Uh, for the last 10 years, when um, the government in the UK brought around the impact agenda for us, Research Councils UK, which is the collecti- collection of seven uh, research councils, the funding bodies in the UK that, that cover all the disciplines and universities, made a case that impact was beyond economic. So if you want to blame somebody for the term of societal and economic impact, that would be research councils, because we were really trying to make the argument it's not just it's not just about numbers, but it actually is about uh, affecting life and, and people. Um I think it's really important to recognize that that's still happening. Uh, For social sciences around business engagement, we're looking at how do you talk about impact that's beyond development of IP or spin-outs and looking at at the nuances that we have and how impact takes time and impact is partnerships. So I think these challenges exist not just in the development uh, research space, but, but across it. However, I think that it's really important in the international development research area to really recognize and probably look in further detail around the partnerships and all of these areas that we've been talking about uh, on co-produced knowledge. You have to be so much more aware of your political situations, I think, that, that you're working in and, and, um, and, and not naive about the countries that, that you're walking into, perhaps for early career researchers. I think it's um, important um, to recognize that as research councils working together is actually we're able to make a much better uh, story about impact uh, w- within happening, especially in the development space. And I think the challenge isn't actually around the complexity of, of impact for us. It's actually about making the complex simple in the communications of it, which has already been mentioned. How do you take something that's actually been complex and tell the Treasury in one line what difference that research or what difference that uh, that investment has made or to our, our own government department um Bayes, business, um, uh, I've just forgotten their acronym, isn't that awful? <laughs> um, our own government department or... Uh, uh, and uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and DFID, um, you know, who we collaborate with to make sure that they're actually capturing and, and making these stories in, in something that's actually quite complex. So I think it's fair to say as ESRC, we mm-hmm. do recognize that impact does take time and it is complex uh, within that. We also have the challenge of telling these stories and we also have the challenge of sharing what we learn uh, across as, e- as ESRC. So, uh, for example, we've got uh, impact evaluations that we've been undertaking for many, many years. We've got a Cultivating Connections report up on our website. We've also got the lessons learned of 10 years of ESOC DFID funding. And there's a lot of really interesting um, factors about the determinants of impact or what what can you see where impact is starting to happen. And the ideas of long-term relationships and partnerships and co-producing knowledge are very much at the heart of, of what those are. I think the challenge is is how do we share that information across funders and how do we share what those lessons learned are and and so that we can work a, a lot better. Across the research councils, we have a joint um, evaluation network that meets on a regular basis so we can share what we're learning around around impact, but uh, uh, amongst other things. Um, and we also have a lot to learn and share from the Global Challenges Research Fund, from the Impact Initiative, um, who's hosting this today, but also around um, other things we've invested in, such as the What Works Centres, which is all about trying to create evidence-informed policy and practice within the UK itself. So there's there's a lot that we have to draw upon that we need to be thinking about how we share Uh, those lessons in policy making specifically um, across the councils. I think um, one of the the strong challenges as a funder that we have, is, is telling these stories, but also about understanding and placing them within the, sh- the, the challenges that academics face around, around what, what they're looking at. And academic is also there needing to advance the academic knowledge of what they have, and I don't think that that can be forgotten at all in the impact agenda, that academics also have, have a driver along with the partners or, or non-academic users that, that they're working with. So I think um, it's really important because you asked about the tensions between simplicity and complex and how are research councils looking for particular ESOC looking for types of evidence of impact. And I, my answer to that is that we actually aren't looking for a specific type of evidence of impact. We don't go and say, well, we expect you to show this has happened through this or, or we want this to be the end result. We're very much open to what the research is going to be, is going to be leading and actually for the researchers or the applicant to, to lead us through to what the impact needs to be through the partnership model or through the research questions that they're building upon. So I think my challenges back to the community who are, who, are, who are working with us and to the researchers is actually, the first one is early thinking around impact. The earlier you start thinking about it means the earlier you can start to think about how you capture it and how you're going to evidence it. What will success look like for you and for the project you're working on? How will you show it? When can you collect it? Where can you collect it? And how can you track it? I think those are, are not easy answers, but the earlier you start thinking about them, that the, the more when the opportunity has arisen or that anecdotal evidence arises, the more, the more you're able to, to, to capture that and, and to share that and to track it. I think the other one that's really important for, for people working in a research project is actually to build in self-reflection time. Of what's working and what's not working and is this partnership you know are are we working with these people are we delivering what they need as well as uh, as well as us I really endorse um, Irina's uh, idea about Oxfam asking Oxfam GB about saying we want to be co-creating the question with you and I think building that reflection time into any research partnership is actually really important to make sure that that those needs are being met and I think my final key uh, thought for to throw back is actually getting to know your funder or your donor or your partner. What is it actually that, that drives your funder and what, what is it that they need? Because you have a lot of information that, that can help them, for, so for us. You know, some, some small I impacts are also just as valuable as the big I, the big changing impacts. The development of new networks or bringing in new funding or, or um, bringing in new partnerships to, to what you're doing is stuff that we're also very interested in and we can help shape that story with you. So I think that there is a desire for simplicity in the communications of it. But we know that it's trying to make the complex simple for other people to understand and continue to invest.
0: Thank you very much. Wow, what a richness of, uh, of, of experience. Um, I'd like to just pick up on that on that point about, about communications. I worked in a, in a government department in the UK, and I produced a um, what I thought was a really pithy 25 <coughs> page report. And I was told you've got to summarize it down into a page. And so I did my best, and it was a page and a half, and I took it to somebody who used to work in the strategy unit of the department, and so worked very closely with the minister. She got the whole report into five bullet points. I mean, it's a real art. It really is an art, and I think it's something that you know I, I still struggle with, and I still have that as my, as my lodestar, getting a 25-page report into five bullet points, without losing it wasn't that it didn't lose the sense of the of the report it was that it was perfectly pitched to what the minister needed it was perfectly pitched and i think that's i think that's if that's something that I can that I can pick up, on, certainly from Mel, and and also from from what's, what what saying, it's about that uh, it's about being able to being able to picture to Irina's different audiences to the different you know to the fact that national governments aren't aren't homogeneous. So um, I'd like to just take a take a five minutes just so the panelists can reflect on on what each other have said, and then we'll we'll throw it open to a Q and A uh, from the floor. Irina, are there any points you'd like to
2: pick up oh, on pick 1 <laughs> first again <laughs> um pick 1 um i think for an organization like oxfam uh well let me tell a personal story when i applied for the job I use the word nuance, and oh, I could almost hear the word the gasping in the background, you know. And I use the word nuance. You know, nuance is important. And I, and I think that I, I guess the contrast between myself and Gina's timeline, and you know, that for us, long is when we have half a year, right? <laughs> and um, and when you know, five bullet points. What about three words, mm-hmm. right? So so for for an organization like. Oxfam, I find the research challenge is about really getting a balance in this world of, you know, which which we know is incredibly complex. And, you know, we actually have very nuanced analyses. You know, we have audience segmentations, research that we, we, we do polls with 12,000 people a year to figure out, you know, are there shifts in how people are thinking? You know, it's quite, quite amazing stuff that's going on. Um, and yet, and, and yet, then taking the risk to be very simple in how you communicate. So I find that a really complicated relationship. To coming from a research background, but having then to do this funneling into something that can be heard and unders- and we think. <laughs> understood is, is, is very complicated, I have to say. it's. I'm, I'm not sure it's complex, I think it's more complicated. But it does mean that there's quite a tension in working with academia because of timeframes. And we're we're trying to figure that out is a lot of what we get um, from academia is actually not that useful for us, but also we don't provide the conditions for them to do the stuff that could become useful. So I think there's a huge challenge there Um, between these these two worlds, I guess. Um.
4: Gina, would you like to pick up on that? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, For the last five years, I've been working in collaboration with um, HelpAge. And that's been really interesting because um, I suppose I had something to offer... Which was that I'd been doing co-investigation where we trained young people as co-researchers as a first stage in a research project in a way of trying to get a, a stronger grip on issues with particularly you know sort of disadvantaged groups. So in sort of this was young people, they were working with older people and they saw the work that we'd done and said, actually, this is very interesting because we have people. Um, uh, we think who would be um, be interested in in trying this approach, and we've done a whole series of research <coughs> projects. We're still working together, on, on because for me the co-investigation approach is really very interesting. They have been able to provide some of the training and the networks and so on, and and that's a long. I think that's sort of a, a you know relationship that's gone from project to project. So I think those things, relationships, can happen. And I think, I, like you, I, I would not be very happy if I was in an NGO where, some, where a university researcher is going to come in and say, um, yeah, you just, you know, you just disseminate. Um, I don't think it will work um, successfully. And, but I think there are many researchers who would appreciate that you need to build a relationship. Because you've got to do it all over the place. I mean, with our in-country collaborators, again, you can't just go in and say, I want you to do this project. You've really got to work together. I mean, I've been working with some people for nearly 20 years now in Ghana. You know, and you build that relationship because it's critical for them and it's critical for you. And we, I mean, some of our children who started (laughs) doing work with us as we trained in 2006 are still now working with us today. And I think w- if you value those relationships, then then they do build and they stay.
0: And Nasreen, building relationships with with national governments—that's I mean—that's been a key part of your work, hasn't it?
4: Yeah. Um, so I guess I can give
1: um, an ex- example from a study I did in Kenya, which was really focused on. Um, mapping the relationships and networks between schools of public faculty and schools of public health and decision makers in Kenya and then using those networks and maps to further explore well why do these links um, exist? Um, what are the strategies for engagement um, and what does it take for a researcher to want to engage versus many who don't want to engage and it was interesting try, speaking to academics about what makes for a fruitful engagement with the decision-maker and then getting the decision-maker, the policymakers' view on what makes for engagement. And the perspectives were quite different, um, which goes to show why there's such a disconnect between why they are able to engage and not. A lot of um, academics or faculty felt that, you know, as long as I've got, done good research, um, it'll speak for itself, and I just get it to on, onto their agenda, onto the desk, or if they come to a conference, they'll hear about what great work we've done that's relevant for policy. You speak to policymakers, and they're like, just show up at my door, just sit outside my office. You may have to wait for a couple of hours, but if I talk to you, I have more of a uh, um, a reason to kind of get, get into the weeds of, of what's relevant. And so trying to understand why certain relationships were existing and some weren't did go back to... Um, Personal relationships beyond the academic arena. So either um, some of these academics and the current politicians grew up in a, sim- in, in a similar neighborhood, or they went and you know they went to school together, they did their PhDs together, or um, you know relationships that had nothing to do with why they're engaging on policy issues, but they were leveraging those p- personal relationships to be able to now bring their research or their their um, information forward. And obviously, there's pros and cons to that first being they had a foot in the academics had a foot in the door to be able to speak to certain politicians but obviously as regime changes and as people move in and out of positions that meant that they didn't have the institutional links that were very dependent on individual relationships so there were these discussions with schools of public health as to how do you how do you build nurture and maintain these individual relationships and encourage them and somehow find incentives to reward academics that are going beyond just publications to actually create impact. But how do you also mitigate the risk of losing those connections through um, a loss of either an academic faculty or a policymaker through building more institutional partnerships and relationships? And one example that they gave was creating an advisory board at the school that required someone from the Ministry of the Health to sit at that meeting, regardless of who came and went and rotated through the ministry, that seat had to be occupied. And that was partly in relation to um, policymakers and practitioners and and, and hospitals and clinics saying, you're producing producing students that don't meet the needs of what we now have in, in, in industry. And so we need to have a better say, or we want want to be involved in your curriculum, in your curriculum development, what's what's being taught and is it relevant to today versus what was relevant 20 years ago. So I think this mix of individual relationships and institutional establishments of relationships need um, uh, a happy medium, um, but both are important just because of the risk of one or the other.
0: Thank you. Um, I'd like to move to the questions now and I'd encourage our online audience as well um, to please do send in your questions. They're going to be, as I said, they're going to be, um, be synthesised and, and sent through to me on this, uh, um, on this iPad so we will be able to take, take questions. But I'd like to now open the floor um, for questions. We've got some roving mics. I think Ashley, you've got a mic over there. There's another over there. Okay, so Jane, was that a question or is that a mic? No, that's, a mic. that's a mic. Okay, <laughs> okay, thank a you. Question. So we've we've got we've got one question over here. Um, have we got we could we could take we could take a few questions all at once. If not, we'll just carry on having a chat amongst ourselves. But no, please. Hi, thank you for the question. Could you introduce discussion. yourself, please? Yeah, Pam Valence, monitoring and evaluation advisor for the Stabilisation Unit. I'm curious what Nazreen and Arena think of the advent of big data and real-time data, um, and whether that in some ways will break down some of the barriers we've spoken about for decision-makers to be able to engage with insight and use evidence but i'm also curious on the other hand discussing nuance what challenges it brings for us as researchers in upping research literacy for big data real time data and quick insights and the challenges and limitations of that for evidence informed policy making thank you two questions two questions in one do we have do we have another question or we can hang on there's there's okay we've got loads now so uh, there's there's one and three, and then I'll, well, I'll come to you in the next round. Okay, we'll, we'll do three questions. So, sir, if you'd like to... Sorry, the second microphone seems to have um, disappeared. That one's working. Could you introduce yourself, please? My uh,
6: name is KC Lai, independent consultant. Is it coming through? Yes. Uh, well, the, I'd like to pick up the point on the eth- ethical uh, issues. I just wonder uh, what dilemma you might have uh, perhaps dif- different uh, panel members may have different insights into this of uh, having scientific evidence which you try to present to uh, a respondent or a response community of decision makers, whether it's civil society, traditional communities, or government officials uh, who may have very, very different value systems based. To some extent, uh, on traditional values, well, I mean, if if jam, uh, maybe one one of those issues which will crop up. How how, how does one go beyond just having one's own uh, uh, understanding of what impact might, might might make sense, as opposed to what impact might make sense to people with completely different value systems, and Linked to that, I think, is also the other problem of perhaps a psychological uh, uh, a nature of, of something which I think some people may call uh, uh, this dissonance uh, uh, a problem of, of not accepting facts because you already have made up your mind on certain facts. Uh, cognitive dissonance, I think, was something that some people uh, referred to. Okay. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And there was, there was one over, over here.
7: My name is Gabriele Maneo, student from LSE.
1: And um, I would like to know, in uh, NGO sector, what are
0: actually the main constraint to deal with an open-minded research that is actually not just aimed at proving the impact, but also at a real and honest uh, learning? So actually, in a complex world, how, what are the constraints for an NGO, and admit that we don't know actually what it works, uh, what it doesn't work, and so being open-minded in having actually research that
6: I'm at learning and not just at proving.
0: Thank you very much. So three three really good questions. Um, the first one on big data: will it break down barriers for decision making, and what are the challenges for research literat- lit- literacy? The second one on on the ethics um, of um, as I understand it, is is of the, is this tension between scientific evidence, expert-driven evidence, and what you might call traditional knowledge, or what might sometimes be you might see as more values-based evidence? So I think that's an interesting one. And the and this third one is is what's the tension between demonstrating impact and actually learning about what learning about what works? Who would like to who would like to take? Well, the big data one was addressed to the two of you, but I'm conscious that I keep asking Arena to go
1: first. So <laughs> Why don't you go first. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I, I think it's a good question. I, I don't know quite what the the right answer is. I think it it will be a challenge for researchers because I it, it depends on the kind of researcher. But I think a rapid response mechanism takes a very different skill set than. Um, uh, what we're used to in terms of more long-term rigorous data that has checks and balances and double checks and balances to ensure that um, it's providing replicable results that are valid and and responsive versus rapid response. But there is a role for the rapid response kind of um, uh, needs, both from the research community to build that skill to be able to respond to what policymakers need. And I think we're seeing an emergence of this skill set, particularly um, we're seeing it in Canada, we're seeing it in Uganda, this creation of knowledge translation platforms. Um, And these KT platforms Play a brokering role in terms of taking data that uh, or information from researchers, packaging it in a way that's relevant and being able to um, position it in a, in a timely way and in in a relevant way for policymakers with whom they've built relationships. But they also play the role of doing the synthesis, but also the rapid response and being able to connect with researchers that are be able to provide the information needed, um, with the caveat that this you know, may not be the ideal solution, but it speaks to the question that the policymaker needs at this point. Um, Does it break break down the barriers? It it perhaps could, and it could serve a role in building trust over time, but I think there are also risks in case um, those kind of results don't produce um, what policymakers are particularly looking for. In terms of research literacy, I think it's the same challenge as it would be with any kind of research. So I don't know if that's helpful in any way. (laughs)
0: Something that I would add to that is, is um, I think there's a, there's a capacity issue. There's a serious capacity issue. Um, the, the, what, what you might think that you know, the, the organisations that generally deal with, with you know, data and big data would be things like the National Statistical Offices, and they certainly ought to have the capacity to deal with that. But many of them have limited capacity to deal with the data just knowing how many people are in different, living in different provinces, what's the age profile, so basic demographic data. And I think there's a concern that if they have limited capacity to deal with the data, they're going to have even less capacity to deal with the big data. And that raises questions of ownership. You know, Who's going to own the big data? Who's going to have it? So I think there are issues around breaking down barriers for decision makers, but who's going to own the data and what role should national governments play in, in owning and using this data? But that's my contributing chair bit. I'm now going to um, go, go back to the panel. Um, Gina, would you like to
4: talk to something about um, this this issue of scientific evidence versus traditional? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I I work in a department where there's been there are a a lot of effort is put into understanding traditional or local knowledge, and uh, I think for anthropologists in general, you know that that would be there would be a clear. Um, appreciation of the need to think quite broadly about where your different knowledges are coming from, to think about how they might actually work together. I mean certainly for, in personally i'm I'm very um, in favor of of a co-production and a co-investigation approach where we would actually engage with, um, in our case, we've trained uh, we've trained young people, we've trained older people within the community as researchers, and that, they, that their insights have then fed in, and they've, we've worked with them into, uh, uh, as we've worked also then with, with, with different approaches, different uh, uh, approaches to gathering knowledge. And we've tried to reconcile them. But there are sometimes things which are inexplicable, unaccountable and I think we've got to recognize that they're there and if we can't do that if we're hiding them <coughs> under the carpet then we're not doing the right job anyway so it is important yeah thanks
0: very much um Mel this issue about impact and learning I know that the question was about was about NGOs but I actually think it's broader than that um, how do research councils see the the importance of, of, of learning and building local capacity as as perhaps as part
5: of or complementary to the impact agenda so you mean developing capacity in country, uh, in yes, other all, countries with that? Or
0: research capacity. Yeah,
5: absolutely. Um, I think it's something we've come to value much more, and uh, more so as, as we've been getting more funding from government around the international development or official development assistance uh, funding space. And we do build that in as, as a mandatory part of, of some of the, the different types of grants that we do fund, uh, especially when you're developing new networks or... Um, uh, with a lot of the, the DFID funding we've had, is, is actually thinking about the capacity and the, the training and skills that are required, both within country, but also back to the UK. And I, I think it's it's quite um, wrong to think that we are training them to, to be better. In fact, there's a lot of, of, of training that, that happens both ways. I think it kind of it comes back a little bit to the question that, that, that you um, asked, uh, is it Casey, around... Um, the getting people to, uh, to understand evidence and your answer around that is actually as researchers you need to be engaging with local people to understand what the local questions are. You might come in and think that this is the right question that you need to ask and actually learning how to ask that and learning how to listen to that is something that in the UK we also need to take on board. Um, we definitely do a lot of studentship exchange and partnership building and also getting PhD students you know, working with, within within the programs as well. Um, I, th- I think the, the big challenge really it's capacity within the research community, or if you're working with, within NGOs, but there's also an element of capacity building of the local universities in themselves. Uh, some of the challenges that we've come across uh, for universities within the UK is the universities in a, in a partnering country being able to actually accept the money or transfer it in, in a way that having a, um, uh, an accounting system that that's, um, meets a UK standard for transfer of money. So we find that when, when you get partnerships um, between researchers, that you're actually an unanticipated benefit is that the university itself, within its systems, can also benefit from those. Okay. Cool.
0: Arenda, do you want to pick up from a from a NGO point of view, impact and learning?
2: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so in Oxfam, kind of research and M&E is kind of separate. Um, we coincide around methodology and and around questions, and I think that's where the the bridge is is to be made. So. Oxfam has to obviously account for the grants that it gets and the money that it receives. So there's quite a lot of investment in um, uh, the impact question or the effectiveness question. Uh, Oxfam's developed, uh, Oxfam GB's developed this thing called effectiveness reviews. I don't know if you've encountered them. And I think there's two things that that um, I'm three things that I'm thinking seeing happening. The first is that the the findings are like what we did in with a recent one in Myanmar. We said, okay, well, this learning, who's, this, it's not just about have we done something, but the insights about what has worked or hasn't worked and why. You know, they have to be, the relevance is is in Myanmar as much as it is in, you know, Oxford. And so it's about investing just a little bit of extra money to do a kind of an interpretation workshop and draw in people. Um, from government and other donors in in Myanmar to say, okay, well, so what can we learn from this, right? So it's actually tiny little bits of investment to take that question into the learning space, to take the evidence into that that space. So that's, I think that's one thing that we're doing. Um, Another question, another issue is to, when we have the opportunity, well, I suppose it's a similar kind of example. See, I don't work in the M&E side of things, so I'm kind of ad-libbing here a little bit. But um, is when we have the opportunity or the need to do an evaluation, it is about saying, well, what proportion of time and energy goes into the demonstration function versus the learning function? I think that's the real challenge for NGOs, is we've got a limited amount of time and money, and any time you spend on accountability is not time spent on learning, right? So there, it's, it's a real issue and so it's about trying to negotiate what's feasible internally to be honest as much as it is externally so i'm, I'm having chats now with one large piece of thematic research on um, economic empowerment for women and it's an evaluation driven piece of research and i'm saying okay well how, m- how much of this 100 percent you know can we take 20 percent for learning can we take 30 percent and how would we use that money and time then so, so um, the big challenge would be time and money, to be honest, um, for this. Um, but I do want to say something about big data. OK. OK. Big data, um, <clears throat> I'm quite, I, I see it as very different from, than real time stuff. So real time stuff is more ICT. It's, you, can, you can do a lot of real time <coughs> stuff that isn't big data. And I think that's fascinating, particularly when it allows you to listen to a lot of people who you would otherwise not hear. Big data, I think, is oftentimes noise. And and I, I share it's it's there's a whole range of you know just a whole bunch of people who are tweeting on the price of eggs in Jakarta. What is that telling us about anything? Right. So it's not necessarily question driven. So where are the questions coming from that make use of that? I think that's a huge issue. The second issue is that is the privatization of big data, and I'm really concerned about that. It's not only who's losing and who's benefiting from um, from the findings, but but what's behind. You know what? Are, what are the what's the power behind that? That's actually generating um, huge swathes of data that become decreasingly accessible to organizations like us who rely on public good uh, data. So so they're, we're work very cautious about it. We're certainly not investing in it, but we are investing quite a lot in real time. So I I'd, I'd, because that allows us to get to voice, and I think that's really really quite different.
0: Thanks. Let's go to the next round of questions. We've got one one there. There was one over here. Yeah, one. Oh, sorry. So sorry. Yes, yes. So uh, perhaps uh, the lady over there first, and then the gentleman in the stripy shirt second.
7: Hello, my name's Doreen McIntyre. I work independently um, evaluating mostly um, NGO work in the development sector. What I'm really interested in is... ...is this meeting of minds between researchers and particularly policy makers... ...and a couple of the panel members have described the situation of sitting around the table... um, ...in one instance with the man from the ministry or the woman from the ministry... um, ...when the discussions are taking place. Um, I cannot completely get the need for and the skills involved in pitching the results of of a piece of research... ...to a minister um, to get traction with the minister... But at what point is there, is there a, a tension in having the politicians sitting at the table, almost setting the research questions? How do you preserve the integrity and the independence of the researchers in those situations when there are people who have questions to which they perhaps do not want to know the answers?
0: Okay, that's a complex one. Uh, <laughs> we have the second one, thank you.
8: I'm James Dean, I'm the director of policy and learning at BBC Media Action, the um, BBC's international development charity. Louise, you started by uh, talking about populism, um, and obviously development um, is under a great deal of scrutiny at the moment. Um, and so my question is actually whether decision making can continue to be evidence-driven to the extent that it, um, to the extent that it has been and whether actually, we're talking also about decision making which is increasingly about what is politically defensible and politically feasible. And given that, what is the role of the research and evidence community in translating their work into language that is much more uh, understood in the public domain? I personally think a great deal of development uh, discourse, as, um, not least because of the evidence on what it rests, is really quite impenetrable um, and uh, somewhat difficult for people whose taxpayers' money is being spent uh, to support this area to actually get a handle on. And I also would include some of the journalism <coughs> around this, which, where you have fantastic journalism in translating really quite complex scientific. Um, evidence into language that people can understand. You don't get that in this area. So I'm just wondering if, if you have any reflections on that.
0: Well, I could reflect the question back to you and say, why not?
8: Why don't we have good journalism?
0: Yeah, in in, in that area.
8: Well, so in I think, I, well, that's a question I'm asking some of my BBC colleagues, um, um, uh, and with some success, I think. Um, I, I think it's extremely difficult question to answer with any degree of sense. I don't understand why journalism uh, either covers, tends to cover, uh, it tends to be either hatchet jobs or puff pieces or there's very little journalism that really tries to get under the skin of how development, um, trying to get under the skin of the kind of issues ODI and everyone else is dealing with here and indeed about how aid works. Um, 12 billion pounds of aid and actually no wonder Um, it's so vulnerable to attack when there is so little journalism that's actually trying to really get under the skin of what's happening to that money whether it is actually having a good purpose or a good good effect or not Um, uh, both for good and bad Um, so I think there is a real challenge of journalism and I'm certainly not going to defend anyone um, because I think it's a major problem
0: Okay, thanks So two questions The first on um I guess I translated as is it are you asking the question is it dangerous for politicians to set the research agenda or do you or is it that by politicians setting the question it could compromise the research agenda It's about getting the power balance It's about getting the power, getting the power balance Yeah okay so there's a question about about power balance because I think the and I think possibly differentiate between politicians and the, uh, the civil servants, policymakers. I think there's often a, a confusion. We often talk about policymakers, and we're not clear whether we mean peop- whether we mean political appointees or whether we mean the bureaucrats who are allegedly supposed to be supposed to be neutral. Although I do have a friend who says that there are in every government department he's worked in, there's a spectrum between. Um, people who have a fundamental belief in the delivery of public value and wish that the politicians would get out of the way and people who have a fundamental belief that it's about delivering ministerial priorities and wish that the, evid- that the evidence would just get out of the way and he says it's a real it's a real it's a it's a spectrum and it really does depend i think it comes back to Nasreen's point it really depends on who you happen to have in the room at the time who you happen to be talking to. So there's, there's that question on, on politicians uh, and, and this power balance around setting the research questions. And then this, um, this question, of, of, of which I think comes back to communication, which perhaps is, is the point that Mel, you were, you were making earlier, is are we just simply not doing enough as a, in the development community to communicate the results of the research? Before you answer that, online audience, if you're there, We'll have one more opportunity for questions, so please do send them through. Mel, would you like to... Yes, thank you. Um,
5: I think your point is very well made around uh, communications and and getting succinct messages out from research. Uh, I, I think... It, it's a challenge for academics. I think, I think you have to understand that, that our training for academics, you know, trains you to write in a certain way and, and to think about that. Now, we have had a massive shift in universities. Uh, academics are blogging, they're into social media and Twitter uh, and, and other f- forms, LinkedIn profiles. You know, they're, they are thinking around this. I think there's two elements to this. Number one is when you're designing research, right from the start, we, we have an, in the UK under the Research Council something called Pathways to Impact that an applicant, when they're applying for a research grant, needs to put, submit two pages around how are they going to achieve what are the potential routes, the potential routes to achieving an impact? And at that point, they really need to be thinking about communications, and they really need to be thinking around, do I have the expertise in the communications? Do I need to bring in ex- expertise or do I need to bring in some training uh, within that? So I think within that we, we need to be enabling and encouraging and supporting academics to be thinking about that from the start. And I say that from academics because from the research councils, we, we principally fund the academics. But they also bring in, in partnership approaches, other people, like if they're partnering with Oxfam GB, who might be able to bring that skill set to it. So be thinking about that from the start. The second element, apart from early thinking about it, is actually training side of it. Now, within our doctoral training centres that we now have, that, that we fund, so those are the massive areas where we fund PhD students, is thinking beyond just the research area is, is, is important, is an p- important part of the skill set. But we also offer, uh, from ESRC and uh, quite a few of our councils, media training. And I think one of the challenges that academics face is actually not understanding how the media works. Uh, and not understanding what the drivers for the media to tell the story are. And I think we need, we're, we're, we're putting a lot of effort into that, but we also need to work with the universities because as research funders, we can only reach a, a certain amount of... of you know people and I think when you start understanding how to write a press release or how to write a blog you're actually thinking about how to communicate and the essence of what we need so it's you know it's not putting your research question up front it's putting your research finding up front Um, and you know there's certain patterns of it but I I think those are two areas that we really still need to focus on and it's not just with the media but obviously the media can take a story and, and if, if you've sold it wrong in the first place, it's really hard to get it back. If you sell it right and then the media tries to dig in a story, then you also have an internal support structure within your university of, of your press and communications offices and it's also getting to know who they are uh, and if you're funded by ESRC, we will also support you on that. So it's, it's having a recognition within that um, and we also, you know, universities have good develop, uh, have good relationships with, with the media, but I think it's still a massive challenge.
0: Thank you. And would anybody like to answer the question on on politicians setting research quest, setting the research agenda?
1: <laughs> I can give it a go. <laughs> um, I think historically they haven't been very involved, um, but more and more research into um, how can we make evidence more relevant for policymakers uh, um, and for the technocrats in, in decision-making or practitioners or the public. How can research, um, in some ways, if we, if we believe that we're doing research um, for social justice issues or, or related to social impact, then in some ways we need to know what the necessities on the ground are. And more and more research is starting to show that with decision-makers at the table helping to define the research question. There is a higher chance of that research to actually be taken up um, and responded to. I think the concern about the independence then of the researcher, I don't, I don't. From from what I what seems to be out there, there is no expectation that policymakers would be involved in doing the research or in, in 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 deciding on method, you know, the rigor or the methodology of the research. Um, the, I mean, there are partnerships where that where that occurs, um, but understanding that there's different skill sets on both sides, there's different um, commitments, different sense of responsibilities on both sides. But that partnership, when developed right from the beginning, seems to have bear more fruit in terms of the research being relevant to what decision makers want versus research for the sake of research. And so. Um, it, se- it seems more and more that those tensions actually aren't as stark as one would expect them to be. But I'd kind of throw it out to the rest of the panel if you want to kind of respond to that. Um, I think but those kind of partnerships seem to be bearing more fruit um, more and more. I think it is about partnership, and I think it's
0: about constantly checking whether the Uh, whether the the, policy makers and the research community understand the importance of the various questions to the different communities. So some work I've been doing in South Africa, we actually went out to the policy teams and we said, what questions have you got? And nobody had ever asked that before. And so we got a list of questions. We went to the researchers who had given... uh, They'd given us a list of research questions that need answering. And it was great. It was all very, very long-term. The policy makers were like, you know, in the next three months... I need this question answered. In the next year, I need that question answered. In the next two years, I need that question answered. And the research community looked at this list of questions and said, Yeah, we could build a program around that. And you know, actually we've got something that clearly they don't know about. We need to repackage and and, and put it in. So I think it's as Nazreen said, it, it really is about building that partnership. It doesn't mean that you have to co-create every single question, because the policymakers will have questions that are very specific to them. That might not be answerable with research, um, and the researchers will have long-term questions uh, that policymakers may not that may not be at the at the forefront of their minds. So I think it's it, it's not just about it's not just about the co-creation, but it is about working together to do these things. Um, I'm afraid, online audience, we've had a technical fault, so I've only just got these. Um, uh, the, these three questions through, and we are running out of time. I'm going to have to move to, to, uh, to the summing up fairly soon. Um, can I... There are two questions in one. So Fiona Napier, is working at Wasafiri Consulting in Kenya, says, given that so few people have time to read even a one-page summary, what strategies for sharing findings and learning for help are, are, are helpful, and how can we wean ourselves off long writing exercises? And then Nabila Habida has said policymakers often think they have enough research and information at their disposal, but they can be overworked and have little time for analysis. So there are both there are two questions coming. They they're coming at the same issue from different sides, which is. How do we actually train people to summarize from a 25-page report to one and a half pages to five bullet points to three words? How do we actually do that? That may be a whole separate panel session, but <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not sure we can answer that. Have you got any any tips, Mel?
5: I mean, we we have been trying to do this for a long time. I think it's embedding it within the teaching and learning of of researchers right from the start and getting people to think about this. I think if you think about writing your paper, uh, writing a three page summary, writing a one page summary, writing a blog and writing a tweet from it probably will really help you narrow down to what's actually the the important bit of it. Because if you can put it in a tweet, then you can build up from that.
0: So, Nabila, hopefully that, that answers your question as well, because civil society organisations can do the, exactly the same with practitioner-driven uh, evidence. We do need to bring this um, this to a close, I'm afraid. It, it, um, it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I just want to ask um, Gina and Irena, <laughs> who haven't spoken within the last five minutes, are any, final, any final reflections, if you have a final reflection, and then we'll move on to the summing up. I think just
4: that... that over time we are I think getting better we're learning as we go and we're just going to continue learning and hopefully getting better uh, at what's really an enormous task. Thank you. Uh,
2: I guess for me the two words are partnerships and journey because the like we have a fabulous partnership internally with our comms unit it's speaking to the striped gentleman well shirt gentleman Um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, they, they help us get to the tweet out of the research report because they they know how important it is to to be part of that discussion, but it's, it only works because we work with them from the beginning, right? So if they're part of knowing that there's going to be a question, then you can have that, what I call, the data journey together to get to the evidence in the different formats that you want to use to try and, and make a bit of a difference. Um, so for me, it's really about those two um, concepts. But it's actually really quite <coughs> hard to know when when to start the journey together. And uh, do you have the money and the time and the freedom to do that and sometimes, whoops, you're on a journey suddenly and then you've got to drag your partners along with you. We have that problem for sure. So there's the reality check to it all. Um, yeah. And I it. think
0: from, from my point of view, um, <laughs> this question of can decision-making continue to be evidence-driven to the same extent, um, I think it has to be, and I think we have to use all the techniques that we have at our disposal to make it so. And hopefully, you know, what you've heard uh, today has, has given you um, some inspiration to know that actually it is possible. Um, and yeah, we need to we, do, we we need to continue to make sure that decision making is evidence driven. I'd now like to. Um, I've got the great pleasure in uh, asking Andy Norton. Um, who is the director of IIED, to come. He's been sitting, listening carefully and taking copious notes. So, Natalie, could you hand him a, um, a microphone? I'm afraid you might have to do this standing up, Andy. Oh, is, is that all right? Could no. you come over here so that you can be captured on the... Um... The big
3: question, but, then yep, is the big I question. Can, I can read my notes standing up, which are copious, and it was a very rich discussion, so many thanks. And, Louise, I think also that you're... Your prior note um, did a great job of framing the specific challenges of this time for policy research organisations. I think that's reflected in the audience we've got um, and in the richness of the discussion. And it did a lot to help clarify my thoughts for sure. Um, So five specific challenges where I think there was a lot of richness in the discussion. Um, Very telescope form. Under the pressures we've got now, how can research remain innovative? Um, Pressures can lead to conservative instincts. Um, Obviously the tolerance for learning from doing and learning from failure is always immensely important. So how to remain innovative. I'll come at the end to some thoughts about solutions on these. How to remain effective. Um, Just thinking in a lot of this discussion about one of the classic examples of policy impact, which was the adjustment with the human face work of the 80s, which is so clear, taking on a really, really complex set of issues, taking it on with great clarity, it took about two years to do, it took a lot of time, but one of the key elements of that was that they provided alternatives which were convincing and they made the alternatives convincing. And if you like, they changed the weather around the opponents. So it wasn't so much about changing the opinions of the opponents as changing the political climate around them. Just to give another much, much smaller example of the importance of time for effectiveness, um, Jamie Skinner at IIED, who works around big dams, has been working with ECOWAS for about two to three years on a new set of social and environmental standards for big dams. This is with governments, not with donors. And again, you can't do that work on your own timescale. You can only do it on the countries and policymaker's timescale. So, I mean, this came out of the discussion a lot, the importance of time, relationships, influence... Um, The third one, obviously, is how to remain challenging. This can be a real kind of boiling frog thing if you're um, in a political environment that's changing fast. You know, how can you remain properly challenging to what's going on around you? Are people nervous about reactions? Um, is this a context where everyone's becoming um, nervous about that? Do you still have the boldness to challenge established thinking? And obviously we're dealing a lot in this room with non-profit organisations that have specific issues, challenges and constraints in that area. How to remain ethical, this was covered very well by the panel. Um, taking time to work with partners, a commitment to working with voice, a commitment to leaving analytic capacity in the country that's seriously useful at the end of the research, um, leaving something behind, obviously. Um, And the final one, the fifth one, is obviously, again, how to remain rigorous about the use of evidence in a context where there may be pressures to do things quickly or to cut corners to get to an argument which may look convincing but may not be soundly based. So I said I would have a go at some answers around that, and they kind of um, reflect a lot what the panel said, mostly. Um, Working a lot around relationships. I think anyone in this room would know that the most effective researchers they've known generally have fabulous networks among policymakers and other researchers. It's a real characteristic of people who have influence over long periods. So building relationships, taking time for networks, taking time for being realistic about time frame needed for this work and impact and communicating, I guess, that back robustly to the donors and to the people that we work with. Not, I mean, the ESRC panellist here made all those points herself, so many thanks for that. Um, the other just final thing, final thought, um, coming back, I think, Louise, to your the way you set the discussion up in your notes is about the politics of change and the very specific political moment that we're in. Um, The really good short discussion around um, something that I think is interesting. I mean, we've, you know, this notion that to be a good researcher, you have to understand the politics of change. That's not new. We've all been saying that for years and so on. But I think what's interesting at the moment is that the politics of change is changing. I mean, the discussion about big data, around proprietary data and how you access that. I mean, there's a whole new set of political issues there around who owns data and under what conditions, particularly the big private sector actors, will let go of data and for what purpose and how that's negotiated. Obviously, the politics of aid is changing. The politics of development is changing. Obviously, that's much broader than just aid. That's about nationalism nativism and populism and the impact it's having on multilateralism right so it's not only about aid in developed countries it's also about some other changes that we can see on a broader level Um, you know digging into climate action and so on and so forth from a number of angles possibly we hope not but we you know it's clearly a specter to be aware of Um, so when we work on the politics of change we need to be aware of the way Of those changes and that there are big changes in the research context coming some of which may look obvious and maybe in your face and some of which are going to be less obvious over time so i think that's a challenge to us as well analytically but many thanks to the panel i thought the panel was brilliant so thanks very much
0: thanks very much indeed andy um, and um, we do need to we do need to close now because uh, the online audience um, and all our technical bits uh, need, need need to be closed down. Um, to the online audience, I'm am very sorry if we didn't manage to get to your questions. We did have a slight slight technical fault, um, but thank you very much for sticking with us. And to the people in the room, thank you very much again for for sticking with us. Um, so we'll close the panel session now. We will move into a uh, a reception for the launch of um, the. Social realities of knowledge, which is a book that's just been published by by IDS so please do please do stay around for that um, please do use it the opportunity take the opportunity to network because as Andy has said that'll make you better researchers and better influencers. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you.